We're protecting kids, and we're going to protect kids when, uh, when it's popular. We'll protect kids even when, when you take some incoming as a result of maybe offending some ideologies or some agendas out there, but that's fine. That was Florida Governor, Republican presidential primary candidate, and professional culture warrior Ron DeSantis on May 18, 2023, explaining why he promoted and signed House Bill 1557. Officially called the Parental Rights in Education Act, critics named it the Don't Say Gay Bill because it made any expression of identity beyond the gender binary or heterosexual family illegal in Florida schools in pre-K through the 8th grade. That includes a teacher publicly referring to a same-sex partner or acknowledging that there is such a thing as gay marriage or that children in the classroom might have two moms or two dads. Books that help children think about these things in any way, like many books about race, have been removed from Florida's classrooms and to the back rooms of public libraries. Subsequent legislation has expanded these policies to cover more grades and more of the curriculum and restrict teachers' freedoms further. Sex education in Florida not only must prioritize abstinence and personal responsibility as the only methods of birth control, but the curriculum can also only refer to heterosexuality. All employees must use the pronouns appropriate to their sex at birth, effectively barring transgender teachers, administrators, and custodians from Florida's public schools. But efforts to push queers out of public life aren't a recent development. As soon as LGBT plus people began to acquire the legal right not to be discriminated against in the 1970s, conservatives and religious groups attacked such legislation as conveying special rights. They launched campaigns to rescind such laws, characterizing them as a response to an emergency, protecting children from homosexuals and homosexuality. In 1977, Christian singer Anita Bryant launched the successful Save Our Children campaign two months after Dade County, Florida passed an anti-discrimination bill. The following year, Orange County legislator John Briggs put Proposition 6 on a statewide ballot, an initiative that would have banned gays and lesbians from teaching in California's public schools. Here, organizer Lee Lee discusses her support for the Briggs Amendment with talk show host Juana Samayoa. When these people came and requested that we dismiss this teacher, uh, we investigated the facts we found that because in uh, 1975 a law was introduced that the California people didn't have a chance to vote on, we can no longer fire a homosexual. What law are you talking about? Okay, prior to 1975, any time a homosexual teacher was, was public with his lifestyle, you could fire this teacher. In 1975, the consenting adult law was passed, and now school boards statewide cannot fire a homosexual who is public okay. with his lifestyle. All right. Now, I, that's the Willie Brown law that you're yes. talking about. Yes. Okay. I want to know why he's being fired. Has he molested any children? What has he done? Has he just simply come out and declared himself homosexual? Well, first of all, uh, the school board will decide after the, uh, after the election what they're going to do with this. Why after the election? Why not before? Well, because uh, our hands are tied now. We're, we're unable to fire him now. Okay. No. There, there are laws on the book that if a teacher molests... That's right, and that's yes. exactly what I was going to say, because right. I want to know the facts. Yes. What has he done? Is, he, is his only offense 
is coming out and saying that he's homosexual? Is that his offense? His offense, Juana, is the fact that he's a walking billboard for homosexuality. Now, if Wait you... Wait a minute. Let me stop you. Okay. What do you mean by that? What's, well, what's a walking by, billboard? By his public advocacy of his lifestyle, by publicly saying I'm a homosexual, whether he comes into the classroom at all or sits, says anything, if, if it's in the newspaper, then by his lifestyle, he is saying, here I am, homosexuality is fine, and a little child who would admire a teacher who is maybe a homosexual person would say, gee, mom, this man's a nice person, uh, so that must mean homosexuality is okay. The Briggs Initiative failed because of a massive organizing effort by California's queer community and its supporters. But as I learned from sociologist Arlene Stein's 2001 book, The Stranger Next Door, the story of a small community's battle over sex, faith, and civil rights, or how the right divides us, even failed initiatives identify pockets of support, generally outside major cities, for attacking LGBT rights at the most local levels. Thus, in 1992, when a group of religious conservatives called the Oregon Citizens Alliance sponsored Measure 9, a ballot initiative that would strip lesbians and gays of civil rights protections, they lost. But they then relaunched their culture war in eight counties and three dozen towns where the proposal had succeeded. One of these places was a small Oregon city that Stein calls Timbertown. In 1994, she traveled there from liberal Eugene, where she lived and worked, to understand the cleavages that anti-queer politics had created. How did a place where lesbians and gays lived openly and unobtrusively become a place where neighbors suddenly seemed like dangerous strangers? What were the larger economic, political, religious, and cultural forces at work? And how do anti-LGBT campaigns become a stalking horse for dividing us as a country? The Stranger Next Door, which won the American Anthropological Association's Ruth Benedict Prize, has so much to teach us about today's culture wars, and particularly anti-transgender campaigns, that Beacon Press re-released it this year with a new preface. Join Arlene Stein and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 27, How Gay Rights Became Special Rights. Stein, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Arlene, your book, The Stranger Next Door, the story of a small community's battle over sex, faith, and civil rights, came out at the dawn of the 21st century. And yet, almost 25 years later, it felt so relevant that the book has been reissued, and I wanted to get it to our listeners. So could you take two minutes and tell us the story? Sure. In the early and mid-90s, there were a series of very bitter battles uh, in the Pacific Northwest around issues uh, relating to what we then called gay and lesbian rights. The Christian right organization called the Oregon Citizens Alliance mounted a campaign 
to place uh, on the Oregon state ballot uh, a series of ballot measures that would restrict LGBT rights. Uh, They called upon the state to protect youth from exposure to so-called perverse behaviors and to get the state to act against the promotion of homosexuality. The book is about a small town that I call Timbertown that was embroiled in this battle among other among many other communities and the impact that this campaign had on the community. It's uh, one of the very few studies that looks very close up at one campaign and the kinds of what were then called culture wars campaigns and the impacts that they have on small communities um, and more generally upon American political culture as a whole. So when the book came out, it was reintroduced, reissued um, recently, the publisher changed the subtitle and added the subtitle, How the Right Divides Us, because it's very much a story about how a a small group of individuals mobilize in a community, and even though they're not very successful in passing their legislative campaign, they're very successful in dividing the community. And um, that is what I see as the, the major accomplishment of this campaign and campaigns like it. And division is really uh, what the right is all about. Let's sort of roll back to when you were doing this research, which was in the 1990s. And I want to tell our listeners, of course, that you have this genius for picking out topics that we think we know all about and then teaching us how much we don't know about them. And I will list some of your other books in the show notes for our listeners. But what was it that impelled you to go to Oregon and do this work? Well, I was living in Oregon. I had just gotten a job there as an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. And uh, I had moved from the San Francisco Bay Area, where I had done my graduate degree and you know lived my nice little queer life. Uh, We didn't call it a queer life at that point, but yes, uh, for a number of years. And, uh, you know, I imagined that uh, San Francisco was, you know, the shape of, of places to come and things to come in terms of sexual and gender liberalism. But then, you know, when I moved to Oregon, which was really uh, not very far away, I realized how wrong I was that the United States is a much more uh, diverse place than I had imagined. I was, you know, I'd grown up in New York. I'd gone to college in Amherst, Mass., uh, then graduate school at Berkeley. So I had really, uh, you know, traveled in a series of liberal and left bubbles, in a sense. And even though many people thought of Oregon as another one of those left bubbles, you really didn't really need to go very far away from Portland and Eugene, where I was living at the time, to find, you know, a, a reservoir of pretty traditionalist attitudes about gender and sexuality. And so I entered one of those communities and as a way of trying to find out more about this part of American culture that I was really uh, not all that familiar with. 
And just to remind listeners that they might want to leave their own bubbles once in a while, I'm recording this here in Northampton, Massachusetts, and it was very graphic during the 2020 election that you didn't actually have to step that far out of progressive Northampton to find Trump supporters. They were five or six miles away in small towns that in some ways are not unlike Timbertown in their size and demographic. So there weren't actually that many gay and lesbian people in Timbertown at the moment that this campaign comes to the community. But they were there and they weren't closeted. So what was the relationship between gay and lesbian people and the town prior to this campaign being launched? Well, right. There were gay and lesbian people there, more lesbians than gay men. Gay gay men tended to settle in more urban areas in in Oregon and in the, on the West Coast as a whole. But lesbians were more likely to, well, you could find lesbians in small communities and certainly in rural areas. And there were, you know, there was a whole history of uh, lesbian communes and lesbian lands in Oregon that began in the 1970s. So there were a number of lesbians in the community. They were pretty well integrated. They were small business owners. People knew them. They didn't really think all that much about the fact that they, you know, were different from them. They were pretty well integrated until this campaign emerged. And during the campaign, people learned, or at least some people in the community learned how to think about gay and lesbian people in very different ways. The right began uh, circulated all sorts of inflammatory, you know, information about what gay people do, the ways that they were infiltrating the public sphere, the ways that they were infiltrating the school system and exposing their kids to perverse information, perverse images, etc. So they had turned this very small population of people who were pretty innocuous into enemies, into people that many people began to think should be feared rather than people who, you know, seemed, you know, slightly different from them, but not all that, not all that different from them. So uh, the campaign was very successful in that way. But, you know, the campaign, as I describe it, was not simply designed to attack gay and lesbian people, even though that was the ostensible hook that, you know, this legislative campaign and the ballot initiative focused on. It was really designed to divide liberals and conservatives and create a kind of wedge issue that would force people to choose sides and to sort of mobilize um, around their different political sympathies. And initially, it was designed to mobilize evangelical Protestants um, and to to get Protestants uh, to see themselves as an embattled minority group, or at least a, a silent majority that was victimized by the left. So, you know, even though it focused on gays and lesbians, the political prize that the right was after was much bigger than that. It was about claiming 
space for conservative evangelical Protestants and mobilizing them to take politics much more seriously. Up, up until then, many evangelical preachers shunned politics. Uh, they didn't think it was their role to get involved in political debates. But of course, a lot of that changed um, in the 1980s and increasingly in the 1990s when the religious right began to mobilize in a conservative congregations, uh, conservative Protestants, and to try to push them to engage politically. You also point to two other big changes that are that are happening, and I wonder if you could summarize them for our listeners. One is a big set of economic changes that are actually destabilizing families in ways that are concrete and material, unlike the threat of, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, homosexuality. And then the other thing that's changing, which I thought was really interesting, was that Christianity is changing, that people are less wedded to a particular church or a particular doctrine or a particular faith, so they can be mobilized as Christians in different ways. I wonder if you could just sort of spell that out for our listeners. Right. You're absolutely uh, right, Claire, that um, the economy in Oregon and in other parts of the country um, is changing at that point. In parts of the country um, that are more industrial, you have a period of deindustrialization. People are losing their jobs. People are losing uh, unionized jobs. Manufacturing is in decline. And there are echoes of that even in more rural states like Oregon, where the timber industry, which was the, the core industry for so many decades, was uh, diminished in many ways, mainly by globalization. And many timber jobs were moving overseas. It was cheaper to import timber from parts of Southeast Asia than it was to uh, take timber out of Oregon and, and extract that resource. So people are losing their jobs, the good jobs in the community that you know supported uh, a family wage are declining. Places like Oregon are ripe for uh, right-wing mobilization, which is one of the reasons why this campaign emerges there at the time. It's part of uh, you know strategy on the part of the national religious right, which decides to target rural states like Oregon, and Colorado was the other, other one around this time that was also targeted, because they see it as a potential base for the Republican Party and for a further right-wing uh, Republican Party that, you know, is focused on uh, elites and focused on uh, mobilizing around resentments toward liberals and as sort of an anti-elitist populist Republican Party. The other thing, as you mentioned, is the fact that religion is changing, uh, Christianity is changing from the dominance of more liberal mainline Protestantism to more evangelical forms of Protestantism, which are often based in, you know, uh, around a, a charismatic preacher. Oftentimes this preacher owns the church and runs the church. It's a much more mobile form of, of Christianity. It's a much more 
emotional and you know sort of charismatic form of Protestant belief focused on the preacher, focused on individual uh, emotional kinds of associations with with religion. The old forms of Christianity that were more based around mainline Protestantism are declining, particularly in certain parts of the country. And the West is a major area in which we see that decline during the 1980s and 90s. And so it's a, it's a powerful moment to take advantage of some of these changes, the decline in the manufacturing and resource extraction base, as well as these changes in you know, the constitution of Christianity. So we have huge economic changes. We have a malevolent force in the Christian right, a national movement, trying to energize a conservative base that's there. And you you mention early in the book that there had been a civil rights referendum that was passed in Oregon, but that there's this substantial minority of voters outside the major cities that voted against it. And one of the things that made me think about is that we need to pay attention to our victories, we liberals and we leftists, because those victories are often won by 10 or 15 percentage points, maybe less. And that means that there is, in fact, a group of people out there that can become a new base for a new kind of anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-trans constituency. How is it that Timbertown people who had lived alongside mostly lesbians, some gay men, without any problems whatsoever, how did they turn on a dime and say, this is something we have to address? This is something we need to do something about. Well, I think the religious conservatives in town were primed to uh, look at sexual minorities as somehow sinful. You know, they would hear in their church services, and I attended a, a number of these church services, which was interesting for a, a Jew like myself who had never really been inside a church before in any <laughs> shape or form to attend some of these services where it was not uncommon for people to hear about the you know sinful nature of homosexuality and you know oftentimes in mocking terms preachers would talk about if we wanted people to marry Adam and Steve God would have created uh, a very different kind of family in a di- very different world uh, rather than Adam and Eve so um, conservative Christians were primed to, you know, sort of be alert to to these kinds of, you know, signs and to think of sexuality and also gender as uh, something that they need to battle to preserve. But the organizers of this campaign were savvy enough to realize that they couldn't win simply by mobilizing conservative Christians, that, you know, Oregon and the West as a whole is one of the most unchurched parts of the country. People, you know, generally believe in God, but they're not necessarily, they're not Bible thumpers. Um, and they, you know, they don't necessarily go to church. Uh, they don't necessarily think of themselves first and foremost as Christians. 
So they they knew that they had to attract people who were not Christians in terms of their belief and participation. And so they mounted a campaign that they knew would play on people's resentments. The white working class felt much more vulnerable than they had in previous decades. And the religious right campaigners knew this. I'll never forget Penny, who was a a white single mother who had recently lost her job as a, a nursing assistant. And when her unemployment benefits ran out, she had a few other options. She told me, uh, I can't afford avocados, but they are buying them like there's no tomorrow. They're meaning immigrants, people of color, arrogant city slickers, anybody who seemed to her at least to work less, but to have more money than she and her family did. So she was skeptical about whether or not rolling back gay and lesbian rights would actually do a whole lot to improve her situation. But she and others like her were willing to see if it might. So basically, she believed that government was not on her side and was never going to be on her side. Remember, this is the post-Reagan era, which we're still in in many ways. And working people like her were perpetually going to struggle with no one to swoop in and save them. And because of this, she wanted to make sure that her hard-earned money didn't go to subsidize what she saw as the profligate lifestyles of others. So who were these others? They were, you know, in this campaign, there were gay and lesbian people, but they were also liberals, you know, writ large, although it was this sort of shadowy presence of people who might have more privileges than they do, who are better educated than they do, who get to travel, and she didn't. And she believed that there wasn't a lot, of, there wasn't enough money to go around, enough jobs, enough, you name it. And she felt that since the pie was so limited, she was going to fight against what she saw as people who were taking advantage and taking more than their share of the pie. So during the campaign, a lot of these resentments came to be framed around the term special rights. Gays and lesbians were enjoying, quote unquote, special rights. Uh, These were rights that ordinary working people didn't enjoy. What were special rights? Affirmative action, sort of the the possibility of gaining a leg up in the employment force if you were a person of color. They were getting a good education and being able to pass on that education to your children. That was that became a special right for some of these folks. And they believe that by punishing people, by excluding them, by calling upon the state to protect white working people, they didn't necessarily put it in those way in that in those terms. They were doing something positive for themselves and for the community. You know, we see this pattern coming up over and over again, the idea that the United States is not a place of unlimited resources, and which, of course, is how many Americans thought about this nation, many white Americans, um, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And this idea that it is, as you're saying, a small pie 
and that some people are taking more than their share. But we've seen that repeat itself, ironically, in contemporary anti-trans feminism, right? That this idea that if transgender people have rights, and I'm pointing specifically to how this phenomenon has raised itself on the left, that if transgender people have rights, trans guys, and specifically trans women, are taking things away from cisgender women that they are owed, that are their rights. So there, there is this competing sense of rights that queer and trans people fall into over and over and over again. How do we account for that? Why are queer people such targets across the board? Well, I think minorities of all sorts are, are targets. Queer people are convenient targets because many people don't know us. Because they don't know us, they can imagine that we're weirder and more dangerous than we really are. That's changing to a large extent, I think, uh, for gay and lesbian people. Majority of Americans have come to know gay and lesbian people, have come to know us as part of their families. And the majority of Americans uh, support gay and lesbian rights today, various sorts, especially uh, the right to marry. That's not necessarily true of trans people. Trans people are still relatively unknown. Far fewer Americans know trans people personally than they know gay and lesbian people. It's partly because there are fewer trans people. Gay and lesbian people are more numerous. And it's partly because trans people are at a relatively early stage in their own public mobilization. It's only really been in the last 20 years that we have seen this issue become a much more public and visible one in American culture. So it's, you know, it's partly a product of time, a temporality, a political and historical context that we're in that makes trans in particular and queer people in general uh, the target of so much misunderstanding and so much fear. But I'm unconvinced that actually um, we're winning in lots of ways. You know, public opinion has really shifted in our favor. If you look at the polls, the vast majority of Americans believe that LGBT people deserve equal rights and human rights. It's really a, a minority of the population that has been mobilized by the right and mobilized very successfully to oppose sexual and gender liberalization. And, you know, it only takes a minority to win if the majority is immobilized, if people don't go out to vote, if people are complacent. So um, I think that we're a convenient target. You know, certainly we're not the only target. And gay and lesbian people and sexuality in general is a great source of anxiety for lots of people. I think it makes sense that people, the right would mobilize around, around this issue because sexuality is something that people don't like to talk about, that they find embarrassing and shameful, at least some, some people do. So organizing 
and mobilizing against LGBT rights plays into the kinds of feelings that people have that they're they're not willing to you know confront often. There were just so many stunning comparisons to our moment. You said earlier that it was a post-Reagan moment. Increasingly, the 1990s are starting to look like the pre-MAGA moment and the pre-Trump moment. Some of the same phenomena are driving politics, are driving conservative organizing. What is it that lesbian and gay people do to fight back in the 1990s? What is it that we can tell our listeners is possible in a moment of extreme stress like this one? Well, I think that gay and lesbian people have to be mobilized, but not simply as gay and lesbian people. We need to join together with our allies. The campaign that I write about in Timbertown mobilized uh, people across a range of different communities who, once the right began to divide the community, they realized that they had no choice but to fight. And it was really an extraordinary mobilization of people who, some of whom were religious believers, fairly new immigrants, teachers, government officials, and others who recognized that campaigns against LGBT people hurt everyone, um, not simply LGBT people. They're meant to destabilize communities, to divide communities, and to diminish people's faith in the democratic process. And we certainly see that today. You know, I'm convinced that the current campaigns against uh, gay and lesbian and trans rights are campaigns against liberal democracy. They're designed not simply to eradicate the rights of gay and lesbian people, but to diminish our faith in public institutions of all sorts, uh, certainly voting rights, and certainly public institutions like schools. So we need to join together with others. We can't just fight for ourselves. We need to understand that our fight is a, a battle for the future of American democracy. And that means that we need to be out, we need to be public to the extent that we can, although not everybody can be as uh, public as I can be, or you can be as, uh, you know, academics, as intellectuals, but we need to join together and build uh, a progressive movement that can champion our rights and champion the rights of other minorities, but also create policies that make this a much more egalitarian society where where political campaigns that are driven by resentment and inequality um, are less likely to emerge because people feel, for the most part, that their lives are good, as opposed to their lives being a, a matter of struggle and fear and insecurity. I think all those things are so important. And I would say another thing that's important about this book, and I'd like to sort of end on this note, is, as I said, it's called The Stranger Next Door. And on the one hand, when you pick up the book, you say, okay, the stranger is the gay or lesbian person who becomes a stranger. But on the second reading, and I guess I read this book when it first came out 20 plus years ago, but I read it again last week. And 
you do an excellent job of demystifying who the right-wing partisans are and encouraging your readers not to see them as strangers. So I wonder, could you tell our audience, why should they read this book right now? Well, I think you're right. I One of my goals was to demystify the right and to to show that they're not simply a bunch of crazies. Uh, that was what we always heard about them when I was living in San Francisco, when I was even living in Eugene, teaching at the university. There, the stereotype about right-wing people is that they were Bible thumpers, the loony right, etc. Of course, there are a number of people on the edges who <laughs> fit that pretty well. But the vast majority of people are simply trying to survive, uh, feed their families, and make sense of the world, which for them is kind of confusing. So rather than push them away, you know, at, at times it's important to, you know, sort of preserve your own sanity and just go off and live on your own and, you know, create your bubble as I've done at various points in my, my life. But I think it's also important to get to know the other, just as they need to get to know us, we need to to get to know them. That becomes difficult at times. It has certainly become difficult during the, you know, the Trump era and after during, you know, the MAGA movement. It's dangerous to place yourself in some circumstances uh, with people who uh, seem so hateful. To the extent that we can, I think it's important at least to, to try to get to know why people are, you know, have some of these opinions and to be able to fight back and articulate what it is that we're representing and what it is that we believe in and how our beliefs in democracy and equality are ones that embody the best hope for our society rather than beliefs that focus on division and focus on upending democracy, because I think they're a dead end, really. <laughs> so we need, to, um, we need to build a bigger tent to the extent that we can. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. 
My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.